Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. Today, we have Johan Rockström, director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Action Research. In partnership with Natural Intelligence Media, Eurovision, and the World Economic Forum, we produced a series of interviews offering depth and focus on the global challenges of our time. How to avert a global climate crisis, how to promote sustainable human development and global peace, how to create a new deal with nature, and how to advance innovative technology for good. In exclusive interviews, world leaders in business, government, and civil society share their insights on the state of the planet, on measures taken to address these global challenges, and on future vision of a world committed to peace, justice, and prosperity for all. I am sitting here with Johan Rockström, who was a former director of the Stockholm Resilience Institute and now the new director of the Potsdam Institute. Johan, welcome. Thank you. I know that you've spoken a lot about and you wrote a book about we once were a a small world living on a large planet. Mm. Now we're a large world living on a, a small planet. How can we use the data, the science that's available, and then these this new technologies that allow us to communicate the space, the size and, and scale of the problem in a way that really also creates a tipping point for the economic community to respond? Your introduction here is, um, is, is, is superb because it, it kind of crystallizes the two strands of science that meet and kind of emerge towards a broader systems understanding of the new quest for humanity of transforming the entire world development within a stable and resilient earth system. And then the first strand is really the 30 years of advancements in earth system science, where we today have landed in, 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 in a conclusion that not only do we live on a complex, interdependent and self-regulating earth system that the Earth system is a Gaia system. It is a system where the biosphere interacts with the hydrosphere, with the climate system, with the oceans, with the stratosphere, with the cryosphere, all the ice sheets on Earth. And that we know today that, you know, geologically, when we left the last ice age 12,000 years ago and entered the interglacial phase that we've learned in school to call the Holocene, despite the fact that you know, all the, all the genetic elements that basically configures everything we know from, you know, dead materials to living organisms have been around often for millions of years. They all settle in when we leave the last ice age. So it's only in the last 12,000 years that everything that we recognize as, uh, as beauty or value or uh, fundamental building blocks for everything we know in our economy settles in over the last 12,000 years. So when we look out of our window and we see a forest or a grass or a wetland or a coastal system or learn in, in, in school or understand that we have ice sheets in the Arctic and Antarctica, all of this falls into place during the Holocene. And it's in the Holocene that we thereby have a planet that established itself in an equilibrium, in a, in, a, in a planetary state which is stable. And it's so stable that the maximum temperature range over this entire phase is only plus minus one degree Celsius. Plus minus one degree Celsius. Wow. And despite the fact that we have been modern humans 
on earth for the last 80,000 years roughly so we have you know we were we evolved into fully fledged modern humans in the midst of an ice age and we were just a few million people and we were hunters and gatherers and we had a very rough time because you know living conditions on earth could vary with plus minus 10 degrees celsius in just a decade because it was such a fluctuation between different extreme conditions and we had you know to put it very simple a very rough time until we leave the last ice age and we enter the Holocene, which is, you know, this extraordinarily stable, warm period of the planet where we have two permanent ice sheets in the Arctic and Antarctica, and we have the configuration of the natural ecosystems as we know it. And, you know, we barely enter this, this uh, fantastically stable state, and we do the most important invention of all inventions since we even could start talking of civilizations namely we tip over from being hunters and gatherers to become farmers we, right. we invent agriculture and we know today with high degree of certainty that what enabled us to do that was not that somebody woke up in a kind of hevreka moment to say oh my god what a great idea to plant a seed no it was a knowledge that probably was embedded in the hunters and gatherers in the deep ice age but it wasn't worth investing in it because the risk of losing your investment was too big because there was no such thing as a predictable rainy season or a predictable growing season. There, right. there was simply no, no predictability in year-to-year -year development. But in the Holocene, suddenly, every year, it started raining in May and it ended in October. Or you got above 15 degrees Celsius in the tropical zone of temperature and it stayed or in the temperate zone, and it stayed in that zone until it became winter again. So suddenly, it became worth it to start planting seed and domesticating animals, and that was the starting point of everything that we call civilization started in that moment. So the scientific conclusion is, you know, as simple and visually easily to communicate, but also as dramatic as, as follows. We know with high degree of certainty that the Holocene, is the only state of the planet we know for certain can support a modern world as we know it. Right. I mean, we've lived outside of the Holocene, but we were just a few million people. Now we are 7.6, soon to be 10 billion co-citizens in a modern world that depends on the Holocene. That's why I've baptized the Holocene to the Garden of Eden. I mean, this is, this is our precious, this is our desired state and the only state we know for certain we can live in. And we now have ample scientific evidence through the hockey stick patterns of rising pressure that we not only are hitting the ceiling of, of this Garden of Eden, we're passing that ceiling. We're transgressing the, the maximum state for temperature, for acidification, for eutrophication, for loss of biodiversity. And so say we, we are hitting a point where we as the scientific community has landed in the conclusion that we have now entered a whole new geological epoch. We are now in the Anthropocene. Anthros right. for us humans. That's, that's another visual communication that we, humans, we, Anthros, are now in the driving seat. We are the largest driving force of change on planet Earth. Right. And, and, and Sir David Attenborough here in Davos at the World Economic Forum did in my mind the, the best summary of this whole story that I've just told by saying I was born in one geological epoch, the Holocene, right. and I now live in another geological epoch, the Anthropocene. And there are very few human beings that can tell the story that they've actually lived through two geological epochs. But he is uh, still living on Earth, 
and thriving <laughs> and, and has actually lived through two geological epochs. And that's the drama. That is, and that's why I've been trying to translate that, for example, in the visual that, you know, just 50 years back, we were still the small world on a big planet. In fact, it, that time, which is just in the 1970s, by the way, was so dramatic because it means that you could actually almost excuse all the conventional economists and, and those who claim that there was no such thing as limits to growth when the limits mm -hmm. to growth report came out or ridiculed Rachel Carson for her silent spring because it was correct. It actually worked. You know, the planet was so big, it was so forgiving that you could overfish and you could cut down trees and you can degrade land and you could pump out greenhouse gases because... There was ample atmospheric space. There was ample ocean space. There was ample biodiversity. You could, you could actually, for free, just exploit, build wealth, and get away with it. But today, you know, just, just 50 years into this journey of exponential rise, we are no longer the small world on a big planet. We are now the big world on this small planet. We have filled up the entire space. There is simply no redundancy left. There's no more room in the oceans or on trees. There's no virgin land we can escape to anymore. There's no ice sheets that continue cooling us. And the oceans still have simply just absorbed so much heat that they can. Because now we're seeing that the oceans are kind of floating up this energy to extreme El Nino events. Or even lubricating the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, which is gliding slowly down into the sea. So now is the time to recognize that no more can we continue this path of unsustainable development? It seems to me there's a real opportunity here for us that if we understand that the Earth systems are interconnected, if we have explored the world in a way where we're able to visualize the trajectory of change and we're able to look back at our history and get a sense of how we've come to this point, mm -hmm. can you share with us a bit about how we can take this sort of quasi-destabilized system state and utilize natural principles that we understand to then start to reimagine a more stable reconfiguration or paradigm mm. that benefits society and benefits life. Mm. I mean, here, here I think there's, um, it is really important to emphasize that there is some light in the tunnel here because while the Holocene is, is, is a state of the planet, the Anthropocene is not yet a new state. We haven't crossed a planetary tipping point that irreversibly takes us to a, an undesired, potentially catastrophic state. The Anthropocene is a pressure. Humans are putting pressures. We're in the driving seat. So we could drive in a new direction. We right. can transform ourselves back into Holocene-like equilibrium state to remain in, in, in a kind of a Garden of Eden interglacial state. Now, I would strongly argue that the pathway to succeed is to take on, just as you refer to, a, a broad Earth system approach to wealth, prosperity, social inclusion and development. So basically to once and for all recognize that now is the time to, to, to successfully have development and meet the sustainable development goals and whatever aspirational goals we have within planetary boundaries and that that shift is not only about saying, okay, so now we have to take care of water and biodiversity and land and forests and all the systems that regulate the state of the planet. Oh no, it's much more. It is about readopting and reconnecting to the biosphere and taking on a new systems approach towards everything we define as, as humanity mm -hmm. and our future. And, and I believe that 
when we do that, when we sort of say reconfigure our systems approach to the future, we will recognize that it's no, no longer a question of, it, these are no longer environmental issues. These are human issues, and it's about planetary health, just like human health. Exactly. And that this is the, uh, the opportunity and the challenge for us. So all innovations on the fourth industrial revolution has to occur within the safe operating space of the planet. Decarbonizing the world's energy system has to follow an exponential roadmap to decarbonize the world economy within the remaining carbon budget that the atmosphere can cope with within the safe operating space. Right. Just last week, we released the Eat Lancet report where we, for the first time, took an Earth system approach to the food system and said, what can science say on defining a safe operating space for a healthy diet within a stable Earth system? And science can today provide attempts of scientifically based numbers for this, basically saying, okay, so here is the maximum amount of, of carbon dioxide, of phosphorus, of nitrogen, of water, of biodiversity that we can allow ourselves to use to be able to feed humanity within uh, a stable Earth system that remains in a, in a Holocene-like Garden of Eden. And that, that's, that's the big quest today. And, and in this report, we show that if all human beings eat a healthy diet defined by health science, and that we reduce food waste, and that we invest in, in sustainable intensification practices that we have available today, we can actually feed 10 billion people with healthy diets within planetary boundaries. That it is, that it is possible to, to exponentially transition into a safe space where we meet this, this dual health challenge of people's health and planetary health. Right. Well, I just want to emphasize for our audience that it's really important to understand that scientists are not only just part of the dialogue in evaluating the state of planet Earth, but with the exponential climate action roadmap, as you mentioned, and with the sustainable development goals have informed the solutions as well mm. with that same perspective of um, natural principles, so shifting the system sort of back to a, a new normal, but one that also mm. serves uh, society and serves the natural world. So can you share with us the partnerships that are important in developing these new solutions? And of course, it's an iterative process. It's, a, it's an ongoing journey. What groups, what organizations, what entities need to be part of, mm. individuals need to be part of this conversation? Mm. I think that this is an area where we're, a lot is really happening now. And, and, and one important step is actually that you know, the academic community, the science community is really stepping out of its comfort zone, yes. basically acting on its own evidence. I mean, to, to, to put it quite frankly, there's, there's, a, there's a rapidly rising degree of nervousness among the scientists and therefore stretching out to try and translate science in, in operational frameworks that can be connected to, to other stakeholders in society. And, and two of these are, for example, that we have translated the climate science into an exponential pathway to meet the Paris Agreement that was inspired entirely by the Moore's Law. So the Moore's Law that became a self-fulfilling prophecy of innovation for the whole ICT industry of doubling the speed of computers every 18 to 24 months as, as stipulated by Gordon Moore in 1962, mm -hmm. which still guides the innovation pathway, which is exponential. Now, we, inspired by that, we, we looked carefully at all the IPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, scenarios that can take us 
well below two degrees Celsius warming to stay within the climate planetary boundary, and saw that you know th this scientific pathway, which you know scientifically is called the RCP 2.6 pathway, which is not very pedagogic as a way of communicating to any stakeholder, but it does translate into a Gordon uh, Moore type innovation pathway that we baptize the global carbon law. And the carbon law simply means if we can cut emissions by half every decade, we follow the pathway to Paris. We follow a pathway back into a safe operating space for climate. We can stay in the Garden of Eden. And when we published this in a scientific peer-reviewed context, we actually ourselves even underestimated the power of, of a carbon law. Because when you think of it, the carbon law of cutting emissions by half is not only simple, it can be adopted at any scale. I mean, you can do it, I can do it, a household can do it, a company can do it, a country can do it, the world can do it. So you can simply go home after this conversation you and I have here and say, wait a minute, I probably can, I can now plug myself into any website and calculate my carbon budget. I can give you the number already now. You probably just like me emit something in the order of 10 tons per person per year because you and I probably travel a bit and we have a, a not 100% sustainable consumption, neither on food or materials. So 10. Well, and that means that in the next 10 years, I have to go down to five. So that is five tons over the next 10 years. It means half a ton per year should be cut for me to contribute as a citizen on Earth towards the pathway that could take us back to a safe operating space. Well, cutting emissions by half over a decade means that I could, over this 10-year period, say that, yes, I'm going to cut all my fossil fuel-based transport by half. I'm going to do twice as much train. I'm going to cut my air travel by half. I'm going to perhaps get rid of one car if I'm in a household with two cars. I could cut my meat consumption by half. So I'm not getting right. rid of meat, but I'll simply just start by cutting it by half. I'll simply start testing all the areas. I could cut waste by half. I could do twice as good in terms of reducing my, my purchases of climate-destructing packaging. I mean, you know, you could, you could go quite practically down in the individual household to think through how I can follow a carbon law. So that's one example of, of the exponential climate roadmap pathway that right. we're suggesting. We took this carbon law also, then adopted it, testing for different sectors in industry. Mm -hmm. And we found, which was really almost surprising to ourselves, even that you know, if you look at the building sector, even the agricultural sector, the food industry, definitely the energy sector, even with existing technologies, we are able to show that emissions can be cut in the first decade. Because as you can imagine, if you want to cut emissions by half every decade, the first decade is the toughest one. Because you go from a high number, the world is actually at 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year, so the first decade, you have to go from 40 to 20. The next decade, from 20 to 10. And the next from 10 to 5. And then you're at zero, roughly at 2050. You're, you're safe back to base. Mm -hmm. The first decade is then the toughest one. This is our decade. It's from 2020 to 2030. It's the, it's the year up until Agenda 2030 and the final, final reporting on the Sustainable Development Goals. Can we do it? Can we really cut the emissions by half over the next 12 years? And we found that, yes, in this Global Climate Action Roadmap Report that we presented in the Global Climate Action Summit in, in September last, or just half a year back, 
we show that with current technologies, it is possible with energy efficiencies, with renewable energy investments, with innovation and technologies that are available from food systems all the way to the building sector, we, we can do it. So it's not as if we are in, in some kind of utopian domain when it comes to going back to a safe operating space. It's more about how do we unleash innovations to scale on technologies that we actually know exist. And now what's exciting about what you just shared is that we're breaking down the problem into its elemental parts. Mm. And again, yet you said uh, all the different sectors of action we can take. How do we stimulate all these different parties to, to act? And how, how are you working with the Potsdam Institute and the World Economic Forum to advance this very strategic agenda on a global scale? Well, because of, of the urgency, I mean, we are at a global urgency point. I mean, we need to bend the global curve of emissions, not in the next decade, actually latest 2020, so in one year's time, and really start following global law by cutting emissions by half for every decade, which by the way globally means reducing emissions within the order of 6 to 7% per year. So it is an, an exponential journey, it's not a linear journey anymore. Right. So be, because it's we are at this existential urgency moment, I would strongly argue, and, and I'm sure that I have basically no opposition here in Davos at least, that we need to act on all fronts. It's not enough to wait for awareness and willingness to act among all citizens, for example, uh, because that will take too long time. I mean, we should act there. We should act with communities and the bottom-up engagements are so important. But that has to be matched by top-down political leadership with uh, you know, ambitious, many times uncomfortable and many times unexpected steps in terms of putting... I mean, for example, we need to put uh, end dates on the combustion engine. We need uh, countries and companies to come out and really say, okay, by 2030, we're not going to produce any more combustion engines. We're going to go full-fledged into a portfolio of EVs all the way to biogas forms of transport. We're going to redesign capitals in Europe to be 80% flexible for public transport and cycling. And, you know, some, some radical big decisions at the political level. We need the, the business leadership, I think, today to step up in, in kind of alliances of, uh, of keystone actors for change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine if the 10 world largest truck producers, you know, with, with Daimler, Mercedes, Volkswagen, Volvo, Mac, and uh, a few others, BMW. Would, BMW, would go together and say, okay, now we are um, totally on board. We're going full blast into artificial intelligence, you know, different forms of energy-efficient, autonomous driving, plus we're going 100% away from the combustion engine. We're going to succeed, and we're going to be successful in that industrial venture. We're experimenting on this with fisheries, for example. We've identified the 13 largest seafood companies in the world and created a network called CBOS, which is the Seafood Business for Ocean Stewardship, with the hypothesis that these 13 that fish all the oceans are part of the whole value chain. They are the most dominant, largest actors. Well, they don't represent more than perhaps 10, 20% in each segment from production to consumption, but they're large enough to potentially be keystone actors that if they redesign the business logic to take on the earth system approach to right. business in the seafood industry, 
could they perhaps be the David that knocks over Goliath? Could they shift over the logic in the whole market? Because they're so important that if you want to compete in the future, you cannot be a, an SME somewhere suddenly say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to continue with my uh, unsustainable overfishing practices right. and I don't care if I'm running my plan entirely on coal. And if that logic could change, I think that's the way to get exponential uh, shifts going. Here in Davos, we're having major discussions with uh, the ICT industry. I mean, the most disruptive frontier of exponential technology development and to see how can ICT, not only with its own technology, be part of the solution, which it clearly is, but even to use platforms such as Facebook and Salesforce and Google to become part of a movement right. towards a sustainable transition to a decarbonized sustainable future. So, you know, I think one has to recognize that as soon as you translate the science and take on a f new earth system science perspective to prosperity and, and inclusion, that in turn translates to the exponential roadmap, which in turn must be translated into completely new ideas of how we can can make progress in ways that accelerates change in ways that we've never ever seen before and that is our challenge thank you for coming and joining us today mm -hmm. really some fantastic vision that you have not only in addressing how we can visualize the science in a more compelling way to get movement on the ground but interacting and participating with the community here in order to accelerate solutions on natural mm. principles and with this earth consciousness uh, architecture in mind. Thank mm. you. No, thank you. Thank you for joining us every Wednesday and Friday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time where we'll post our interview for the day. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs>